0: I would just say overall that the oral microbiome is something that is quite new um, and it is, it is very important for your overall health not to be under- underestimated. And if the oral microbiome is sufficiently stressed by a sugar-driven diet, I mean, that's, let's face it, that's very common in our world, That mm-hmm. the oral microbiome will lose its microbial diversity. Um, and it'll be converted to a very pathogenic, uh, very acidogenic, uh, high, high in acid, low in pH uh, kind of organism, uh, a microorganism, a microbiota. And that is in your mouth. It's living in your mouth and it's feeding your gut. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the
1: world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to MediGene's Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from California is Dr. Mark Burheen. Hi, Mark. Hey, Nathan. How are you doing? Very good. Uh, So it's an interesting time at the moment. Currently um, in the COVID-19 pandemic and things are very hectic and crazy. But we wanted to pause and pivot and talk about uh, the role of the Mouth as a, the gateway to health in um, systemic health and disease, and Dr. Burhan's a dentist and is the founder of AskTheDentist.com. So, Mark, perhaps you can probably do a much better job than myself. Can you give us a bit of a background on who you are and, and what you're doing at the moment?
0: Sure. Um, I'm, I'm a, a general dentist. Uh, I've been in practice for uh, over 34 years, and I have a, a degree in, a undergraduate degree in biochemistry, uh, and I've been essentially very functionally minded from day one. I mean, as a 14, 15, 16 year old, I was actually taking supplements. That was a long time ago. Um, and reading about what was, you know, what was, uh, good for our bodies. And of course we had a lot of misinformation back then, uh, especially when it came to fat, saturated fats and, and, uh, and, you know, carbs were more de rigueur. Obviously we were very wrong on that. Um, and my, my, father was a very well-known physician, and he kept saying, you got to go into the health sciences. That's where you can do the most good, and I, I didn't disagree with him. But unfortunately, he was so well-known, I didn't want to really follow in his shoes. So I came across dentistry very inadvertently. Um, it was a personality test that I took back on an old CPM machine down the basement of a library that dates me there for sure. Uh, and. Dentistry came up as a, and I just really had no idea. I didn't really have a very close relationship with my dentist. I didn't think of dentistry as being something I would be interested in. And of course, uh, I absolutely love what I do and find it just fascinating. And recently, it's become just a much broader profession in so many ways, uh, which we'll talk about later. Um, so I've written a book on sleep, I became very interested in sleep uh, due to my own personal health and my wife's health, uh, I kind of had to crack that nut about 10 years ago, uh, medicine really in my area, even though I'm in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, there was very little uh, very little help as in regards to someone who's very thin and very healthy other than I had 12 uh, apneas per hour. So. I, that's why I wrote the book. That's why my daughter and I wrote the book. We really wanted to fix that whole process of how to get help. And then during the research for that book and treating myself and my family, realized that Dennis can see and, and um, screen for and recognize sleep apnea decades before any physician can, because we're looking at different things. So that's, of course, in the book. And so that really changed how I practiced. Uh, And and again, that's back to that very functional model. It's like, let's get back to the root cause. I mean, instead of scraping your teeth and gums, you know, because you have gum disease and filling all the holes in your teeth because you have cavities, what caused all that? And can we go back a few steps and prevent that from happening? So that's kind of my short story of, you know... uh, of how I came to be and how I think. And, and the website really is an extension of that, askthedentist.com. That's my daughter and our our little project, which now has become probably one of the number one oral health sites in the world. And we're both very proud of it, but there's just so much more information to get out there. So it's it's kind of an ongoing thing. We, we, we really feel that the information that, typically goes out is not always correct like on fluoride like uh on what is the cause of decay and and all these things so we're, we're still in the process of re-educating everyone including practitioners dental practitioners
1: well wow, that's yeah quite a, a journey and yeah it's fascinating that yeah i think with um most specialities that they're focused on the the area and as you mentioned it was sort of mechanical almost for a dentist but yeah it's the research, and as you've found, shows that the mouth and is strangely connected to the rest of the body. And that's what I want to uh, explore today. So there's two areas I want to look at is um, the role of the oral microbiome in systemic disease. And then we'll move on to an area where you're really focused on is the role of uh, sleep apnea or the, the, the mouth and the structure in sleep and sleep apnea. So first of all, um, oral dysbiosis the composition of the microbiome in the mouth. What overarching first of all, what, what role does that play in systemic health?
0: Right? Well, this is something I did not get in dental school. In fact, still even today, this is not something that is, is really discussed in detail, and that is the oral microbiome. And what is the oral microbiome? Uh, the short answer is that it's uh, the, the better half of, of us. I mean, we are superorganisms. Um, I see myself completely differently now, uh, having figured out and after having been introduced to the oral microbiome, and it's just like the gut microbiome. It is a bunch of bacteria and viruses, fungi, um, even parasites. These are all the other living things that, that aren't really human DNA that are living in us now. And I think that's a really important concept to understand uh before we discuss you know how the oral microbiome helps us it's it's really kind of a kind of a synergy between two different organisms and and that makes us the super organism the problem is is that we've been really abusing our our uh our partner our health partner and the mouth is a classic example of that um so let's say Let's say we've got these bugs in our mouth and the old way of thinking, and it's still very current uh, in many areas of dentistry, is that we're always trying to disinfect the mouth. Of course, Mm -hmm. you'll see that with mouthwashes, alcohol-based mouthwashes. You'll see triclosan in mouthwash, although that recently has been removed from mouthwashes. Thank goodness that was a pesticide or a soap, more, more like a detergent. We've got other chemicals in there that disrupt the oral uh, mucosa uh, uh, that are used in manufacturing in large batches like surfactants, uh, emulsifiers, and all these things disrupt these bacteria in our mouth. And the thinking has been to prevent bad breath and to have good oral health was to, to knock everything down, to carpet bomb the mouth. and And, and in fact, that's been... We, dentists are particularly guilty of this. We we've had the wrong idea for a long, long time. So, so the real question is is what should we be doing, and how important is the oral microbiome? Um, I think we all can agree that the gut microbiome is pretty darn important. Important, right? In terms of immune health, the gut brain access, and it is essential to well being and health and longevity. Well, the oral microbiome is not just a little part of it, and it's not disconnected. It actually is feeding the gut microbiome. Um, With all the saliva that we swallow daily, it's a few liters. Uh, You've got hundreds. I think the count that I've seen is 130 to 170 million bacteria are swallowed a day from the mouth. So the question is, Is What are we seeding the gut microbiome with if the oral microbiome is off if we've been Disinfecting it and it's almost like antibiotics in the mouth. It's it's akin to that way of thinking Eventually that creates a dysbiosis. So so obviously that's not what we want to do. Uh, I can certainly talk about You know what we should be doing uh, but in general the oral microbiome, along with the gut microbiome, is a key part of keeping us on track in terms of overall health, immune health, uh, you know, endocrine uh, regulation, uh, mood, even mood. Uh, it's protecting uh, our, these semi-permeable, or even semi is not the word. Sometimes they're very yes. leaky, these membranes. The mucosa, the oral mucosa, and the gut lining are very thin they're just a it's one cell thick and so we really have to be careful what we put in our mouth because it'll affect our overall health
1: absolutely now there's one organism that seems to be probably the most published on i want to spend a bit of time on that um, with links to systemic health and that's uh, p. gingivalis or it's links to um, gingivitis and periodontitis right. Um, so it's not just like a, a cosmetic issue or a local issue, as I understand. So yeah, can you give us a, an update on um, all the conditions systemically it's linked to?
0: Yeah, P. gingivalis and strep mutants. Those are, the big, those are the, the big names in oral health. And so these bugs are typically have a very bad connotation. These are bad bugs. But they're present in all of us. In other words, every healthy person on the planet has P. gingivalis. Um, So the question is, is what goes wrong? How does it end up in other parts of the body? And the connection between P. gingivalis and heart disease, diabetes, the the big one is uh, is Alzheimer's now. The P. Mm -hmm. P. gingivalis bug actually creates this, and again, this is a word that you've been hearing a lot lately, this cytokine storm that literally liquefies your gums, but also it crosses in into the body Um, And there are three different mechanisms of how these bugs in the mouth create damage in the body. Uh, But it actually, short story, gets past the blood-brain barrier in in a different form via a gingipin. I think it's a protease. And that actually tells the brain, I mean, it it forces the brain to lay down amyloid, amyloid plaque. So this is a causative, so this this PG bug, the P. gingivalis, is actually now considered a causative factor in Alzheimer's. Uh, the heart connection, wow. the diabetes connection, these are all things that we've known for quite a while, but we're just beginning to really figure out how this happens. And it can happen many different ways, it's, and it's still poorly understood. It's typically a metastatic process. It's via infection, injury, and inflammation. Infection is the obvious one, that's what most dental students will know, that's a bacteremia. So if you go in for a cleaning, let's say you you have a dysbiosis in the mouth, and these the P. gingivalis is and, and your strep mutans, these are bugs that you really don't want large populations of. And if they are dominant and they get into your bloodstream, then you are essentially infecting other parts of your body just via the bloodstream circulation. Uh, and that happens within minutes. Every time you go in for a cleaning, you get this bacteremia that lasts for about 20, 30 minutes. This is why dentists used to pre-medicate with antibiotics if there was some scar tissue in your heart, heart valve issues, because or a hip prosthesis, uh, because we didn't want these bugs to settle out, so we had to kill them in the bloodstream before they did settle out. Uh, the other, the, uh, there's, uh, there's an injury mechanism, metastatic injury. That's where these... You know, these certain gram positive, uh, even the gram negative bacteria, they have the ability to produce uh, exotoxins. So not only are they infecting, but they're causing injury to tissue just by the Mm. exotoxins that they're creating. And they can be lethal. Um, These are liposaccharides, and they can cause a lot of uh, tissue damage. Um, The the last known or known uh, uh, mechanism is just overall inflammation so just the fact that these uh, bugs are entering the bloodstream then you know the antigen uh, or the immune system responds and that that will react with the specific antibody and then you've got chronic inflammation throughout the whole body even at the site of deposition of the bug but elsewhere as well so it just ups the fire the the inflammation fire in your body it's uh, it, it's been linked to the oral systemic condition is what I'm referring to, bugs. Yeah. What happens in the mouth can happen in the body. It's been linked to uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, uh, all sorts of conditions. But the big ones are probably lung infections as well. Certainly pneumonia. Uh, we we do know that connect uh, about that connection, but the Alzheimer's is the one that really should wake us up. I mean, this is happening. This could. Alzheimer's, we now know, starts in our 30s, uh, could very well start in our 30s, and it could very well be related to gingivitis, very early stages of gum disease. And this is a healthy individual, a young person that is completely unaware of the fact that these little protein proteases are crossing over the blood-brain barrier and causing the brain to start laying down its defense mechanism and early stages of Alzheimer's. I think every dentist really needs to take that to account. We really need to be practitioners of the oral microbiome. We can't just be the drill and fill kind of dentist anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting with the Alzheimer's, the beta amyloid, which has been the, seen as the hallmark of the disease for almost a hundred years. Right. Um, and therapies that lower the beta amyloid has systemically failed, seemingly with the, um, the disease progress. And in some cases, I think made it worse. But uh, there is that view that maybe beta amyloid is an antimicrobial, and that sort of fits in nicely with this P. Gingivalis, um or the the ginger pan entering and the beta amyloid there trying um, in a less than ideal manner to, to mop up the infection. Um, so leading on from that, like these uh, pigeon has been shown or linked to triggering these diseases. So what about treating like um, periodontitis in these conditions? Will you? S- can you expect to see improvement in disease activity of a systemic disease?
0: Absolutely. If you treat gum disease, so let me back up a little bit. Um, this is why I created this uh, a physician's letter. It's called the physician's CRP letter. A lot of physicians are treating their patients and using uh, elevated inflammation, uh, you know, by the CRP test or high sensitivity CRP test as an indication that their treatment is working. Uh, The problem is, is that most physicians don't understand that the contribution of oral disease is dramatic to that CRP level. So this letter is something that, uh, you know, if if a patient is aware of it, they can grab it and give it to their physician. He fills it out, sends it, uh, the patient will bring it to the dentist. And that way the the dentist and the physician are both aware of what's contributing to the overall inflammatory response. And we, we can't, you can't treat a patient in a vacuum not knowing about what's happening in the mouth and vice versa as well. There's some dentists that aren't aware of, of perhaps what else is going on in the patient's life and, and uh, physically. So it's um, treating gum disease, I would have to say, is as essential as just about anything else in terms of reducing inflammation and it could be the root cause of anything. So if you can treat the gum disease, and reverse it, or typically what we do is we arrest it, then some of these symptoms, um, for example, you know, painful joints, swelling in the joints, uh, heart disease, diabetes. There's a very well-known connection between stabilizing blood sugar levels. Let's say if you have gum disease, it is it's a two-way street. It is likely. Most people that have gum disease have diabetes. It could be part of the causative process in gum disease. But on the other hand, if you have gum disease, it's very difficult for a diabetic to control their blood sugar levels. So if I have a diabetic patient, I definitely want to make sure, A, they don't have any inflammation in the mouth. And if they do, we've got to get rid of that because their lives, as a diabetic, uh, will be much easier without the inflammation in the mouth.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, it's all connected, and you can get regression in these diseases. And really, hopefully, the listeners um, realize that the importance of uh, assessing and then treating gum disease. So, treating gum disease, then uh, a two-part question: um, what What does that usually entail from a a dentistry point of view? And secondly, are there like nutritional, herbal, non you know mechanical? therapies that can also help with periodontitis.
0: Right, so the traditional method, and it is far from perfect, this is the dental approach, is treating the signs and symptoms. Uh, Most of us have had our pockets measured in the dental practice. Uh, It's usually done by the hygienist and you'll hear a lot of three, four, five, three, four millimeter pocket readings and they're being charted. Hopefully you're not hearing any nines or tens or twelves. That's indicative of this cytokine storm that is breaking down the collagenous attachment of of the teeth to the bone. In other words, the teeth don't sit in the jawbone directly. They are connected to the jawbone via these little ligaments. We call it the periodontal ligament. And these ligaments will break down if there's any inflammation in the pocket. So if you have a dysbiosis, and again, it it wasn't until recently that we would call gum disease a dysbiosis. We just called it an oral disease. But really the root cause of it is is a dysbiosis. The wrong bugs are in charge and they are harboring harboring themselves in a very um, oxygen depleted area, the deep pockets, and the anaerobes are able to really develop. This disease is is, uh, very common. I mean, I would say in the US right now, at least 60% of us have gum disease. There are some reports that it's much higher, it depends on how you measure it. But I mean, that's pretty prevalent. There's only one disease that is more, um, that you're more likely to have and is, is, is more prevalent, and that is decay. So the two major diseases in this world are both oral diseases. And again, it's all referred back it, it all goes back to this dysbiosis. Part of it is caused by how we're dealing with it as patients at home. You know, oral film, uh, sorry, biofilm management. What we brush with, what we use as far as mouthwash goes. So, but the way the dentist treats it is, we we get down underneath that pocket between the tissue uh, to the very base of where the those little collagen fibers attach, and we make sure that area is very, very clean. The problem with that is that it doesn't really treat the root cause of of the of the gum the gum problems, and that is the dysbiosis. So. We can go in there, clean everything, reverse that inflammatory reaction, the immune system response, uh, a lot of bleeding gums and inflammation, uh, gum recession, necrosis of the gum tissue, which by the way is not reversible. Um, Once you have gum recession and bone loss, those are the two supportive tissues around the teeth that that are lost during severe stages of gum disease. Um, That is permanently lost. It's very hard to get back. Uh, we, we just don't have a way of fixing that. Uh, again, that's where I refer back to arresting the disease. So we do that, and then typically what I'll see is I'll see an improvement 80%, 90% of the time, but in two or three years, the patient's back for more of these root planings. It's called scale and root planing. And most of us have experienced that because it's such a, such a common disease, uh, especially as we get older, and it's not pleasant. So how do we really... Along along with that therapy, which is important, you know, once you get calculus and tartar and toxins below the gum line on the root surface, you do have to remove them. But we really have to look at what is causing that to begin with and stop that in its tracks. And that goes, that falls back to recognizing and treating um, dysbiosis or recognizing that the oral microbiome is key in, in all of this, and I think dentistry is struggling with that. Um, I think we're getting better at it. We have tests for it now, oral DNA tests. And the problem with these tests is that you know most of us as dentists, we, we see the results, and the companies really aren't making any conclusions, and we have to make the conclusions. And it's very difficult to know. Even the researchers really don't know what is the right uh, ratio of you know P gingivalis to a Bacteroides bug. We, we have some idea but, and then there's a lot of variability between patients. So it is a very complex disease that has always been that way. It's multifactorial and of course it, the impact is, is great uh, systemically.
1: Thanks. And nutritional therapy, I've seen, um, I haven't dove into the uh, research too much but uh, Suggestions of coenzyme Q10, I think yes. omega-3 fatty acids and vitamin D, uh, I think uh, statistically significant. Um, do you know, is, are they clinically significant, those studies? Yes, they are clinically
0: significant. CoQ10 has been around for a while. Um, there are some good studies on that. Um, also, uh, um, K2, A and D3, those are the three that I recommend for my patients. If they're having any bone loss issues, any necrotic tissue, uh, along with the dental therapy, we always, we literally specifically give them a specific regimen as to what to take. Uh, We also ask them to get their D3 levels checked by their physician. And so we counsel them on that. Um, Diet is also very important. As we get older, we start lacking collagen. So we talk about bone broth and trying to get collagen into your system. Another big factor in this that I haven't really brought up yet is mouth breathing. Uh, mm. A dry mouth causes a dysbiosis. Uh, think of the gut, ah, of course. think of the gut. If the gut, yeah, yeah. If the gut was open to the, to the open environment, there would be big fluctuations in pH, and pH, a fluctuation in pH in the gut is, is a big deal, as it is for the oral microbiome. But the fact that the oral microbiome is at the opening of the elementary canal because we can open our mouths as we exercise, as we talk, you know, a lot of us like right now, I'm a little thirsty. <laughs> um, you know, it, that dries out the mouth. So there are, uh, a lot of fluctuations in pH in the mouth and the bacteria respond to that. So as our mouth dries out, as our saliva is depleted, uh, it, it the pH drops. It becomes acidic. And there are certain bugs that love that environment, especially a lot of the anaerobes. Um, so sleeping with your mouth uh, open at night and you wake up with a dry mouth, that's six, seven, eight hours of a very low pH in the mouth. That also is a contributor to gum disease because it causes a dysbiosis. It is also a contributor to de- your decay rate, how many cavities you get in your lifetime. Again, because that dry mouth causes a dysbiosis. So the question is, is why are we sleeping with our mouths open? We can talk about that later. But so that's another uh, thing that the patient has to be counseled on. We, we do need to get them to breathe properly and breathe through their nose, nasal breathing, so that the mouth is, has a very stable pH. Uh, certain foods, of course, are, are good. There is a diet. There's a great book, actually, by an Australian dentist, uh, Dr. Stephen Lynn, that I highly recommend. It's called The Dental Diet. And I, I think that's a central reading, because if you don't get if you don't get the diet right for your oral microbiome, the ramifications are are systemic. I mean, it's global for your body. So there K2, A and D3 are key, and coQ10 are, are big ones. But you know, there's L-arginine. There's, there's a lot of research coming out on a lot of these things that actually affect the biofilm. And the biofilm is, which is what we used to call plaque and plaque has gotten kind of a bad reputation, but every tooth that comes in has a biofilm. It has a little plaque layer. As the tooth erupts in a child, um, I always like seeing that because I look at it very closely under magnification. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to memorize the look of a healthy uh, pellicle, was the term, then plaque, and I'm, I'm trying to recognize that healthy, shiny, thin, uh, biofilm, because that biofilm's there for a reason. It helps uh, protect the tooth. And we're always trying to scrub it away. We're trying to knock it down with alcohol. Uh, you know, that's the wrong idea. I mean, we need that biofilm. So there are certain foods that will disrupt that biofilm, and there are certain foods, and you can guess what they are. Um, the carbohydrates are very deleterious to the biofilm. It thickens the biofilm, and it feeds the wrong bacteria in that biofilm. Biofilms are pretty nasty things in general uh, because they are very resistant to uh, a, a lot of things that we, you know, a lot of medications and things like that. Because they are protecting themselves, the bacteria are literally trying to protect themselves with that layer. It's very difficult to get to to, to remove or to break through or to change from a pharmacological standpoint. So we we've always fallen back on toothbrushes and toothbrushes, that's a mechanical way of disrupting the biofilm. But do we remove the biofilm? That's not actually what happens. Do we want to nourish the biofilm instead of carpet bombing it? Absolutely. Does a healthy diet, high in saturated fats and protein and very low in carbs, especially processed foods, does that help nourish the, the biofilm? Absolutely.
1: Wow. Um, just made me th- wonder are there any natural agents that people may be inadvertently or using um, that could disrupt biofilm like i, I know stevia is used for like systemic biofilms for say for like lime-like illness etc right. are there any big red flags like with I don't know, essential oils or herbs yeah. etc that well, we should be mindful
0: of yeah i'm really glad you brought that up uh, when you first mentioned any other items that are natural i right away thought of the eos the essential oils and we all love our essential oils, right? Uh, there's a place for them, um, but they can be toxic, they can cause liver toxicity. There have been issues with uh, essential oils. Essential oils essentially are bactericidal and I think cinnamon is one of the strongest and I think anise is on the bottom of that scale uh, in terms of kill rate, uh, effectiveness of killing bugs. So. And I, I actually just spoke to an influencer recently, a health influencer out on the East Coast. He had a very bad reaction uh, to a natural, uh, holistic you know, toothpaste. Uh, and his mouth was burning for two weeks. He could barely speak. Uh, that was, that's his business, to, to be able to talk. Uh, it really impacted him greatly. And this was a natural product. So you know, I like to pick on the big corporations because most of their stuff is junk. But you know there are a lot of natural toothpaste that have essential oils. And if the concentration is too strong, uh, that is not good for your oral microbiome. That is just another example of, of carpet bombing the uh, mm-hmm. oral microbiome. So p- preferably, I would not use any essential oils in the mouth. And I think most of them are there just for taste. But there are a lot of brands, especially a lot of the natural brands that are touting, oh, we've got a natural way of killing bacteria. Well they still don't get it. Whether it's natural or unnatural, you know, with a synthetic material or a strong chemical or a, what we think is something natural to kill bacteria, it's still the wrong concept. We are, we are not there to knock down our gut microbiome or our oral microbiome. We have to let it do its thing and we have to feed it and nourish it so that it can do its thing.
1: Thank you. All right, so let's move on to the um... You alluded to the mouth breathing and the sleeping, uh, the mouth breathing at night. So, this is something you're really passionate about, and you've uh, wrote a book on the uh, exploration of uh, restricted airways during um, sleep and the ramifications there, and how the mouth structure uh, affects that, obviously. So, yeah, what motivated you to write the book in the first place?
0: Well, um, it was, uh, it's the first. Few sentences in uh, the introduction. It was we were dropping our oldest daughter off at college, and and I woke up to three of my daughters. We were all in the same room together, hotel room, dropping off Catherine. And I, I literally woke up with three of my daughters throwing pillows at me, going, "Dad, you know, um, you know." It was like there was a freight train in, in the room all night long. And and I guess I mean that was the first time in my early mid 40s that I was being told that I snore. And and of course. I knew nothing about, I knew absolutely nothing about sleep apnea and about snoring. Snoring was kind of fun, kind of cute, silly, inconvenient for your sleep partner. Um, you know, it. Uh, my parents snored, both my parents snored. And snoring actually is, is, is a big deal. It is a very important uh, symptom or sign of something far greater that is going on. So it really came down to... Realizing after I got my sleep study that I had mild sleep apnea. I had 12 apneas per hour and Even my physician said you really don't have to worry about it. If it gets worse, you know, let's let's deal with it but I did want to Reduce that to zero and apnea is a a moment where you stop breathing at night and it leads to an arousal In other words, you wake up you can't sleep Um, 12 times an hour someone was waking me up. Uh, It was my airway collapsing and my wife actually had, uh, even though she's very thin and very fit, um, she had an AHI, uh, an apnea score of, she had 34 and a half apneas, which is severe sleep apnea. So we both got right on it and educated ourselves. And then we were very frustrated by the whole system with insurance and the knowledge of the physicians and the, the pathway to healing ourselves. It was, it was a very complicated issue. And that's when I realized that dentistry has had a real opportunity, has a real opportunity and really should be in the driver's seat along with sleep physicians as to uh, screening, diagnosing and we're actually part of the treatment process as well. So I actually made myself an oral appliance. That's a device that um, keeps your jaw from falling back when you're sleeping. And that took me after verifying that with a sleep study that took me to zero interruptions. And the difference between Mild sleep apnea and no sleep apnea, I have to say, was remarkable. I had no idea. I mean, it was just like waking up and feeling better and losing weight and exercising more and making good food choices. I was able to stop my addiction to sugar uh, because I wasn't craving uh, the wrong foods. Uh, Sleep apnea wreaks havoc on your leptin and ghrelin hormones, which is appetite and satiety. Uh, satiation uh, response. Uh, I mean, it, it really changed my life and it's kind of what I needed. And a lot of this was just, oh, I'm just getting old. This is what it's like to get old. Yeah. And then I saw this in my patients, the same kind of attitude, especially in men. And, you know, then I was able to, after a lot of research, uh, and again, a lot of this information. Uh, is has been out there for a long time. Uh, there's a very well-known dentist in the 30s, 1939, 35. I think in 39 he wrote a book on you know facial development and who mm-hmm. has a smaller weight's Dr. Price, of course. Um, so anyway, uh, how did I get started on this? It was a it was a personal journey. It was I discovered that I had it, knew nothing about it, and was very frustrated that I didn't know anything about it. And very quickly, within a year, got up to speed and took care of business. I mean, that's just my nature. Um, a lot of people aren't that way, uh, and that's fine, but that's why I wrote the book, was to help them. And the book has proven to be a very kind of a guiding light in the confusion that still exists here in the U.S., at least, in terms of, you know, how do I know I have it? Uh, should I care? And if I do care, uh care enough, then how do I go about fixing it? And that's what the book basically does. It, it streamlines that process. So, so and it turns out most of my family has some form of sleep apnea, even my young daughters. Uh, there, there are a lot of variations of a narrowing airway. There's something called upper airway resistance syndrome. A lot of young, healthy women, especially Asian women that are eating a Western diet tend to have smaller airways. Uh, and this has been just a fascinating journey in terms of how dentistry can help society. Uh, and this is has now become an epidemic. I mean, sleep apnea, a lot of people say sleep apnea is on the rise because we're getting better at diagnosing it. I don't think that is the only reason. I think it's because we are developing into a different shaped species. Our faces are narrowing. We have Our jaws are not as square Uh, They're not as wide, they're tapering, our faces are falling backwards, uh, and all of that affects the airway uh, as an adult. So, uh, and this development occurs within the first 10 years of of development of of childhood. So, um, I'm kind of rambling at this point, the question was, how did I get into sleep apnea? So, you know, when you have children and you have sleep apnea and then you get, you're concerned about them and you have a pool of patients that are undiagnosed and have no idea that they have sleep apnea, ninety percent of people in the. US that have sleep apnea don't know it they're undiagnosed they're running around driving cars, operating heavy machinery, operating on people, flying planes. this is a real problem
1: absolutely and as you mentioned, your, your children have some form of it uh, what what does the research show about children what what's some, some of the symptoms or what conditions is sleep apnea linked to in children right.
0: So children, um, that's another great thing that a dentist can do. He can, I recommend, you know, my patients always ask me, when should I bring my kid in? I tell them, you know, bring them in as soon as you can. Maybe bring them in with your, your next dental visit after you've given birth. And sometimes that's at, eight, at one month or six months. Uh, and there are a lot of things that we can see, you know, is the child's mouth closed when they're at rest and breathing? That's a big deal. Um, is there a tongue tie? Uh, the, the, it's the muscles of chewing and swallowing. It's the tongue mostly, but there's certainly other muscles. It's the It's the muscular action of breastfeeding. It's not just the nutrition from breast milk. It's the action of breastfeeding. It's the motion of swallowing. It's the rest position of the tongue. All these forces are what determine the shape of our face. Um, I always tell patients to keep it very simple that there are three boxes that have to develop properly by age 10. 60% of this development occurs by age 4 or 5. So the three boxes are the mouth box, the space in the mouth, the throat or the airway box, and the nose box. And the nose box and the mouth box are sitting on top of each other. The roof of the mouth is the floor of the nasal cavity and behind that is the airway box Facial development, as the child grows, and if the tongue isn't tied down and is able to move around properly, if they're able to keep their tongue at a nice upward-forward position while they're sleeping and their mouth is closed, um, the face will grow in width, and that that means the nose box and the mouth box tend to be wide. They tend to be more square than very narrow and elongated. uh, Because if that happens, the box behind it, the airway box, will do the same thing. It will narrow. So the development of the two forward boxes, the nose and mouth, um, affect permanently the width of the airway box. And if you grow up that way, then you you are faced with a lifetime of having to deal with and treat sleep apnea. And of course, sleep apnea leads to so many things. Um, so it's... it's um, why is this happening? I mean, it's 40% of males between the age of 50 and 70 have sleep apnea. Females is 27%. When I first started my journey with sleep apnea, it was they were much lower numbers. I, I see it as low right. as 6%. And, and, and in my practice, in the beginning, I was being very conservative, but I, I, I put it at about 20%. But... Um, you know, even females between the age of 30 and 49, 9% of them have sleep apnea. Males are quite a bit higher in that age group, 26%. So, but it, it has a lot to do with, I mean, all you have to do is look at our ancestors and even, I'm not talking about cavemen or Neanderthal. I'm not, I'm talking about mm. people from tooth, uh, you know, the archeological, uh, anthropological st- uh, studies and X-rays and cross-sections of skulls from 2,000 years ago. Uh, they, we are much different from those ancestors. We are narrower, thinner, tapered faces. Uh, the faces are pushed back a little bit. We're retronathic. Um, I, I have a little bit of that. I'm, I'm, dentistry has been classifying this for a long time, but we really haven't been relating it to, to the size of the airway. We have a class one, class two, class three classification system that's the side view of the jaw structure. We have what's called cephalometrics. We have x-rays that look at the shape of the skull. And this is all kind of, has it refers to, you know, what do we do from an orthodontic standpoint? These are measurements that we take. And uh, and it's just recently now that we take these measurements, and, and even the researchers are taking these measurements, and comparing it to the size of the airway. Um, we have a new technique, three-dimensional x-ray called the cone beam, and we're actually looking at the size of the airway in conjunction with the width between the upper two-second molars, that's the width of the upper jaw, and, and other spaces, the nasal space and, and, uh, and the width and the size of the lower jaw. So, so we're, we're beginning to look at all these things, and there are some clinicians that say that they could reverse these discrepancies, or deficiencies actually, in an adult, and open up the airway and that that is that's another that's a big rabbit hole to go down, but that would have to do with maxillary expansion and, and even surgery, orthognathic surgery, so but the key the key to this is Breastfeeding as long as you possibly can and that means being able to breastfeed properly um, You know the uh, the ability to be able to breathe passively and easily through your nose um, a lot of us think that if we can breathe through our mouth, we're great. If we don't breathe through our nose, that's okay, because we have our mouth. Well, our mouth is used for other things, and it's primarily responsible for eating and chewing and speaking. I, I now consider the airway as just one unit, and if the nose is offline, to me, that is an impaired airway. It's not that, oh, the airway, the, the air is able to come through the mouth. We don't need the nose. Remember that's where a lot of our nitric oxide is produced uh, by breathing through our nose. Um, And as we get older uh, we lose nitric oxide, the ability to produce nitric oxide. We produce nitric oxide in our endothelial cells. There's a synthase there that produces it by age 40, 45. We've lost 50% of that production. The good news is that we can produce this nitric oxide by eating properly leafy vegetables and beets, um, chocolate, Unfortunately, that only works if you have good oral microbiome on the base of your tongue and in your nose and if you're nose-breathing. That's where the majority of our nitric oxide comes from. And nitric oxide is a very important compound. It uh, helps dilate our blood vessels. Uh, it is. Um, it can kill viruses. It helps uh, with the health of our lungs. And so nose-breathing is a big part of that. If you're nose-breathing, you are... You are making, manufacturing a lot of that, assuming you have been using a lot of mouthwash and you have a good oral microbiome. Uh, nose breathing also um, helps regulate our respiratory rate and our uh, resting heart rate. The red blood cells, uh, for them, in order for them to release oxygen to the muscles, there has to be CO2 in the bloodstream. And I think that has to do with the pH of the blood. So a lower pH is optimal for release of the oxygen to the brain and to all the organs and and muscles. So, but if we breathe through our mouth, we tend to overbreathe CO2. So, just the act of breathing through your nose, uh, and it's it's a lot more complicated than this, of course. But the difference between breathing through your nose and your mouth, uh, constantly on a, on a you know daily, makes a big difference in your sympathetic tone as opposed to your parasympathetic tone. And how much blood you're getting to, to, how much blood you're getting to your tissues in your body. Um, nose breathing kind of takes care of that all on its own. It's a it's a it's a better system. But if you're mouth breathing, you tend to to not get as much blood to all the vital tissues in your in your body.
1: Well, so many questions I got asked. Uh, one I want to explore is the treatment then for sleep apnea, and specifically my naive view that it requires the CPAP machine, but is there like a spectrum? Are there other options for, for milder cases? What's the, the battery of possibilities, I, I suppose, for sleep apnea?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and, and that's exactly the word, spectrum. It, it is. There are many different ways, either on their own, alone, or in conjunction with each other, uh, it used to just be the oral appliance and a CPAP, and I'll explain that later, but very early cases like UARS uh, or a patient that is not able to nose breathe properly, just by fixing that alone, whether it's through mouth taping or seeing an ENT and getting that nasal passage open so that they're able to breathe. You can certainly see a Buteco practitioner, a malfunctional therapy. These are Practitioners that are absolutely amazing. Uh, It took me a long time to realize that. They teach you how to swallow properly, how to breathe properly, where to put your tongue at rest. If you go through all that, and again, that's not having to deal with any kind of surgery necessarily other than nasal uh, septal surgery or turbinate surgery removal, um, which is pretty easy to do these days, uh, that alone could get you to stop snoring. Snoring, of course, is a indication that the airway is collapsing and touching. If you're breathing through your mouth, the airway tends to dry out. That causes inflammation. The airway gets a little bit bigger, a little bit puffier, then it narrows. It's more likely to stick together because there's no saliva and lubrication in the airway. So if you can get the patient, a borderline patient, that is be- is just showing the signs of uh, some some collapse of the airway or just a narrowing of the airway that's upper airway resistance syndrome um, just fixing the nose, getting them to be able to breathe through their nose at night and sometimes forcing the issue by mouth taping that alone is a great way to go I've taken I've solved a lot of mild cases this way with patients. Uh, the next method of course would be um, the CPAP continuous uh, pressure, Therapy. These are machines, of course, that everyone loves to hate. Uh, the APAP, CPAP. APAP is the automatic version of the CPAP. There's a BiPAP. There are these machines that literally push a lot of air pressure into the airway, preventing it from collapsing. So I'm not very keen on them. I mean, they are lifesavers, and they are necessary in a lot of cases. Uh, but I do th- think that it is a very... Uh, inelegant solution. I think it can affect uh, the small pressures involved in lymphatic drainage and tissue and but that's that's very controversial and theoretical. Um, It would be nice if the patient can breathe on their own. The oral appliance uh, either in conjunction with the CPAP or on its own and that's what I wear, that's what what my wife wears, that's what my two of my three daughters wear, that prevents the jaw from falling back and that affects the tongue position. So, by holding the jaw forwards and preventing that that relaxing of the jaw muscles and and allowing the jaw to fall back, it keeps the tongue uh, away from the back of the throat, uh, the velopharynx. So, but that doesn't work on everyone because we all have different anatomy and everyone has a constriction at different points of the airway. If the constriction of the airway or the collapse of the airway occurs very far down the airway, then forward positioning or holding, preventing the the mandible from falling backwards uh, back does not work. If the constriction is higher up, like near the nasopharynx, then an oral appliance or a mandibular advancement device uh, can work very, very well, and that, that does not involve surgery. Both the CPAP and the oral appliance will not work very well, or you can look at it another way, they will work much better, the efficacy is much improved if you can breathe through your nose. So again, nasal breathing, whether you're getting treated for sleep apnea or whether you just need nitric oxide as you're getting older or you want good proper facial development as a kid so that you don't have sleep apnea later in life, nasal breathing is key.
1: Well, that's good to know there's options there and some are, yeah, not invasive. So, and yeah, I think practitioners should have hopefully understood the importance of um, explaining for that and referring on. All right. so. You've been generous in your time. I know it's getting late there over um, in the U.S. So, yeah, I just wanted to, any sort of last takeaway messages you want to um, deliver to the audience? Oh, boy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think in general, uh, yeah, in general, I would seek out a dentist that is functionally minded. Uh, I would not underestimate your oral health. Uh, It is as important, and in some cases more important than your overall health. Uh, you know, you, you have to have a really skilled dentist. You have to have them in your pocket to be a healthy person, just as you do a physician, a chiropractor, a ophthalmologist, um, acupuncturist. Uh, a, a good dentist is key and make sure they're functionally minded. Um, I would just say overall that the oral microbiome is something that is quite new. Um, and it is, it is very important for your overall health not to be under- underestimated. And if the oral microbiome is sufficiently stressed by a sugar-driven diet, I mean, that's, let's face it, that's very common in our world, that mm-hmm. the oral microbiome will lose its microbial diversity. Um, and it'll be converted to a very pathogenic, uh, very acidogenic, uh, high, high in acid, low in pH uh, kind of organism, uh, a microorganism, a microbiota. And that is in your mouth. It's living in your mouth, and it's feeding your gut. So, make sure you're using the right products. Um, uh, a lot of this may seem very confusing—not uh, confusing, but overwhelming to people. That's why we have our website, askthedentist.com, and this is all explained on our website. So, it starts off with finding the right dentist uh, that that thinks like what we just discussed and can recognize sleep apnea early on, can see your children and recognize that uh, they are headed that way, uh, can help you with nasal breathing, can give you the right advice, nutritional advice, um, and also tell you which products not to use that will cause this dysbiosis in the mouth. So again, I know that that's a mouthful right there, but got to have a good dentist, man. (laughs)
1: That's the message. Perfect. Yeah, and just to reiterate that, yeah, the website is incredible. I think yeah, the traffic gets um, uh, out of this world. And yeah, all the resources there from referrals, nutritional information, sleep apnea, I really encourage uh, listeners to, to get on and listen to that. And yeah, one last thing, your book, can, what's the title of the book? Where can people oh, find it?
0: Yeah, the book, it's called the, you can find it on Amazon. You can type in my last name or the title, the eight hour sleep paradox. Um, it's a bestseller of the orthodontic category, and uh, if you have, if you know someone that is snoring or is sleepy, takes naps, again, these things, that's not normal. Uh, I don't care at what age. Even, I know a lot of young people that are napping in the afternoon. Uh, when I fixed my mild sleep apnea, my naps disappeared for good. I try and nap. I kind of miss my naps because it's a nice time to sit You know, Mm -hmm. in a sunny little uh, family room and lean back and take a little snooze. I can't nap anymore. That is just not a normal thing. You should just sleep when it's time to sleep. And this book will explain all that. There are these long checklists in there that you can kind of quickly go through or share with someone with your sleep partner, your spouse. And you can get to a a decision very quickly whether it's something you need to have tested. And if you do think you need to have tested, then it, it walks you through the process streamlines it so that's the eight hour sleep paradox
1: great and finally uh i hear from a lot of people who write books they do it once and it's an arduous task and they never want to do it again (laughs) uh you hinted that you're going back for a second time um, to give us any idea why that's on right why (laughs) yeah uh
0: i would like to i i think we need a definitive book on facial development um Ah. it's a very complicated uh topic and it's a book that will be it's, it, it's a book for everyone, but it really will be directed towards young parents. Uh, there's so much you can do before age four and five that will help your child thrive and also thrive as an adult. And all this stuff is preventative, and it's so sad to see uh, it being ignored and, and affecting the person as an adult. And it could even be beyond that. It, it, it almost is a determinant of your destiny, your personality. Uh, Your functionality, what you're able to do, your happiness quotient, uh, um, your interaction with other people. I mean, being able to repair yourself at night, your brain, with uh, supercharging your glymphatic system, repairing your body from all the damage that's done during the day, that's sleep. And sleep is crucial. And it is under attack via many epigenetic factors, blue light, the digital world, our our modern diet; uh, these are all things that can be dealt with and and managed. And if you do, it's it's a it's a wonderful life waiting for you.
1: Mark, you keep giving us pearls there, but I'll have to, <laughs> I think we'll have to wrap it up. Um, there's so many uh, yeah pearls of wisdom there. I really appreciate your time. Uh, good luck with the next book, and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you very much, Nathan. It's great talking with you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.